It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. If I told you the government could track your car from your doorstep, across the country, or even while you pull up in a drive-thru to get some late-night burgers, you'd probably believe me. You might shrug and say, NSA, Snowden, am I right? Even if you're not doing anything wrong, you're being watched and recorded. And the, the storage capability of these systems increases every year consistently by orders of magnitude. Well, what if we motherboard got access to a pool that allowed us to do just this? No secret bunker access or government spying, but a private industry network geared towards profit-making that allowed us to surveil a car with frightening accuracy. Thanks to Joseph Cox, our guest this episode, we now know this is a real thing in 2019. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. Okay. All right. Let's do this. Joseph, what the fuck, man? This story is nuts. (laughs) Uh, It's a little bit unusual, yeah. A private investigator source had access to this nationwide surveillance network. Uh, And when they log in, they can look up the location of a good sizable chunk of the cars in the United States. Um, So what I did was I provided them a license plate of a car with consent. They enter it into the system and then they can see where this car has been from state to state, down to the street, um, over several years. So this is based on cameras that are spread around the country. It's not run by government, not run by any sort of even local or state government entity. It's an entirely private firm that is running these cameras around the country, collecting that data, and then also selling access to that database as well. It is an entirely for-profit network uh, for surveillance. That's what's so mind-blowing about this, though. It's This is a private network. Right. This is a private... This is not the NSA. Exactly. We, we, we often think about government surveillance programs. So, to be clear, this is uh, using license plate recognition technology, which are little cameras spread around, and, you know, whenever they see a vehicle, they'll take a photo of the license plate, and they'll be able to... Um, digitally recognize it. And if you have enough cameras, you can see that this plate, uh, 123X, was in this place, and at this uh, time it was in this other location. Law enforcement use these all the time. There's a big debate over whether they should have a warrant to look up that data or not. But personally, I'm just a bit more interested in private entities getting access to this. And very quietly, over the past 10 years, this company called Digital Recognition Network um, has built up the infrastructure to spy for private individuals across the country. I mean, it's basically, it's, it, it, it's a shadow state in some ways. It's like a shadow state for the state or, or against, or for private companies. Yeah, I think the way I was phrasing it is that it's a private surveillance network that's been built up for profit. So this company, DRM, will make this. And the way that they actually collect the data is they've actually outsourced that as well. So they will... Uh, sell to repo men the cameras and they could be ten or $15,000 each. They'll put them in the car, uh, the repo men, and when they're driving around, they may pass a vehicle uh, and it will ping up on their alert system and say, oh, hey, that vehicle actually needs to be repossessed because they're behind on their payments or something. Okay, that's great. And then the repo men um, get to speed up their own process. But while it's doing that, as the repo men drive down the street, it actually takes photos of all the cars it's passing. So the Reaper men are simultaneously using the database, but also 
building it. And that's sort of the genius of DRN here is that they didn't really have to do much. They don't have to go out and collect the data, at wow. least not now, because their customers are doing it for them. Okay, but is any of this... Is it, so this is completely legal. Right, so... If it was law enforcement, it might be different because you have the Fourth Amendment, which, you know, protects you against unreasonable searches and seizures. And there are various court cases where people are arguing, hey, you looked at my location information over this time, you should have got a warrant for that. But with private industry, that doesn't apply. A private investigator doesn't need a warrant, an insurance company doesn't need a warrant, and either does a repo man. This is entirely separate from that legal debate. And taking photos in public is protected by the First Amendment, right? So DRN's argument is that we're just taking a lot of public photos and automating it uh, and doing it at scale, but that's still protected by the First Amendment, is their legal argument. But that tool is so powerful. I right. mean, it's, it's, it's like a big brother thing. Right, it's, right. That's what it is. And <laughs> Um, critics say that, sure, a private investigator may go and they may be driving around and they'll see someone's car in a driveway or the street. They'll take a photo. That's fine. That's protected under the First Amendment. But then when you start to do it at scale, uh, and I mean, DRN says it has 9 billion scans of plates, it qualitatively becomes like a different beast. It becomes something else. And critics are kind of wondering whether it should be treated um, differently for that reason. I mean, this is a private industry tool. Do you think that the government has tools that are much more powerful? Well, so as mentioned, Vigilant, DRN sister company, will sell access to their database as well. But then, of course, um, law enforcement may have their own cameras or maybe they'll use Vigilance as well. They'll, they will more take Vigilance data and combine that with the stuff they already have. So if you're on a toll bridge, for instance, there's probably a license plate reader there. If you go across a bridge, I believe in New York, at least law enforcement were looking into deploying those if they haven't already. It's kind of supplementary to law enforcement tools as well. And this is, I think, surprisingly um, common. And we also even see it in um, private businesses as well. So let's say I'm just hypothetically a Walmart or something, and I want to see the customers that are driving into my car park, I could put one by the entrance of the car park. Now, that's not going to be the same as, you know, having cameras all across the United States and tracking people. You can do it on a local scale. And then even neighborhoods. So if I live in a cul-de-sac with 10 different houses and we want to make sure that people aren't coming and robbing our houses or we want to catch them, private residents are now setting up license plate readers at the end of their own street as well. This technology has gone from law enforcement to private industry to random people. What about like somebody who's tracking their their partner in some mm -hmm. really maniacal way. I mean, this is this seems like the perfect tool for right, it. Right, exactly. If you have a license plate reader sat outside um, the entrance to sort of your suburban neighborhood or something, and you can see every car that's coming in, going out, you can see when the wife or the husband you suspect of cheating is leaving and coming back, all that sort of thing. And then with the databases like DRN, of course, if I had access, I could have theoretically just looked up any license plate I wanted. This seems like there's just absolutely zero oversight. What is a private investigator and who gets to decide that and why do they get to have this, this you know, Leviathan machine right. at their fingertips? Right, yeah, private investigators do a lot of different stuff. So on one end of the spectrum, maybe you'll be hired or they'll be hired in case they suspect a, a wife or a husband is cheating, the sort of normal thing you would expect from that industry. And on the other side, they're sort of closer to the repo men. Maybe they'll be the 
hired by an insurance firm to, hey, someone's really behind on these payments, we need to locate this vehicle, or this has been stolen. So they can do a wide variety of tasks. You do have to be licensed in the majority of states to become a PI, and it varies on how hard that is. In some states, you only need to be licensed on the local level, and in some, not at all. But again, even if you couldn't necessarily get a license to be a PI and then get the system yourself, you may be able to obtain access another way. A Facebook group that I got into that's um, closed off but used by PIs, there were people there saying, hey, I need someone to look up a plate for me, could you DM me? And then they would just trade the information like that. Favors, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. So clearly the access to this really phenomenally huge data set is not exactly locked down. I mean, in an era where we have problems with the way our police are even behaving. With cameras mounted on a police cruiser, what we're looking at is a license plate directly across the street, 131-9161. Cops in San Leandro, California, can capture and record license plates as they drive down any street. You've got private investigators, this other aspect of it that now can take advantage of this massive data set. Right, yeah. When when the police do something, I mean, it's grotesque and there's brutality and there are abuses, but there is some sort of avenue of complaint there. You could send a freedom of information request and you can get more information about how the police are using it. You can't do that with private industry. They're not subject to any sort of FOIA laws. You can't go and ask them, hey, tell us all the times you looked up a certain car, they'll tell you to get lost. So it's outside of the legal sort of realm for covering up. But then also just when it comes to transparency, we don't know what people are doing with this tool. What I find interesting about this story, like a lot of your your great reporting, it's just you're really exposing just how vast the private surveillance world is becoming. You know, it's it's so often that we look at something like the NSA and, and domestic spying. But meanwhile, we have this complete shadow state that is creating a data set an infrastructure to spy on people and to gain information for whatever capitalistic end (laughs) it requires. And I just think, when are we not being watched? Mm -hmm. And it's not even conspiratorial anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, you bring up capitalists there, and it is important to remember that this is not a public service or, you know, like the UK's NHS or something like that. It is purely for profit. This was built so they could sell DRN, could sell access to make money. Um, That is the entire purpose of it. And when you can allow private industry to do that, you get these very interesting and potentially concerning private surveillance networks. And yeah, we cover a lot of private spying. I've never quite seen one that's sort of at this scale, except maybe the cell phone location data tracking. But that's what America's like. You can get private investigators and private individuals looking up the location history of where a car has been over years and years and years. And all for the right price. Absolutely. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Jason, 
Welcome back to another edition of The Roundup. It's a fan favorite, I hear. It's a fan favorite. It's a fan favorite. So first story, books on the internet, making sure everyone can read them. Tell me more. Is this just like you're just giving me some words and then I just like uh, talk about them? Yeah, spin. Yeah, so earlier this year, the New York Public Library found that millions of books are secretly in the public domain. So America's copyright law is a huge clusterfuck in which... Mm -hmm. All books published before, I believe, 1926 are in the public domain, which means anyone can take them and read them and republish them if they want. It's just like falling out of uh, copyright, so it's free for anyone to use. Then there was another law passed or something happened in, I don't know, like 1956, something like this, that made the copyright term much longer. So basically anything published after 1956 is still in copyright. There is then this interim period between 1926 and 1956 where books could get published and then they could have had their copyright renewed, meaning the publisher had to say, hey, I have an interest in this and we're renewing the copyright. And those books are still under copyright and thus cannot be copied, republished, etc., However, most books between, published between 1926 and 1956 or whatever this period is, it's in the article, you can find it, uh, fell out of copyright, meaning that they are secretly in the public domain. Are you, are you following? I'm following. So, yeah, so there's all these books out there that never had their copyright renewed. Thus, they are free for anyone to download, read, republish, etc., but there's no good way of figuring out which books those are. So the New York Public Library launched this uh, program earlier this year to identify those books by going through like the Library of Congress's copyright renewal database or something. So they wrote a GitHub, they wrote a program, the code is on GitHub, uh, and there's basically a bunch of libraries, the New York Public Library, and then the Internet Archive, and a bunch of volunteers associated with it that are trying to write tools to determine which books are in the public domain and which are not. They're then asking libraries and people who own copies of these to scan them, and then they're uploading them to the Internet Archive. So it's this massive project to basically put thousands, perhaps millions of books on the Internet Archive. So you don't have to pay for them. So you don't have to pay for them. Free. Free as hell. Free. Free as hell. Uh, which is super cool, but uh, it's obviously complicated, so... Thank yes. you for bearing with me. Yeah, it's very, you know, nerd alert. Uh, okay, this one I don't, I get it, but I, like I, I'm more, when I have tons of tabs open, all my tabs are just me going through weird article stuff. Like I'm not ashamed of my tabs. So I, I got to wonder, why is there a laser tripwire that minimizes your tabs when someone walks by? Like, why do people have... Is it because... Is it porn? Yeah, yeah. so we work at Vice, which means that we can uh, look at porn for articles or just, like, weird shit. Like, I don't know. I'm regularly looking at very weird stuff on my computer that would probably be considered not safe for work at a lot of other places. <laughs> but let's say that you, like, uh, are an accountant who does spreadsheets all day. Uh if you are looking at sports scores or watching the big game during work or, uh, you know, chatting with your friends or Never browsing have Twitter or Reddit or what have you, and your boss walks in, you don't want them to see your screen. So you can buy one of those, like, little privacy screens. It makes, uh, it, makes it, like, dim if you're not looking directly at the screen. Uh, but these are not perfect. 
And so this guy made a laser tripwire. <laughs> so it's basically like this little uh, RF receiver that you put on the door to your office or next to your cubicle or whatever. And then it's a USB that you plug into your laptop or your computer. And when someone walks past and trips that tripwire, it automatically minimizes all of your tabs. Or you can have it do whatever you want. So you can have it like switch back to your spreadsheet that you're looking at. Well, that's some shady shit, I gotta say. It's fun. It's a fun little thing. It's a fun little thing just to hide your porn tabs. That's all that is. Yeah. Okay. Someone, somewhere, this is like, is this some like Satoshi stuff? Somebody moved a lot of Bitcoin recently. Yeah, so earlier this month, there was a single Bitcoin transaction for many Bitcoin. I don't remember how many, but it was over $1 billion US uh, in a single transaction, which is just, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it's rare. Like, it's rare that something like this happens. And so the Bitcoin world was up in arms because they're like, hmm, who is sending around a billion Bitcoin at once. And no one has any clue who sent this. Like, obviously, all Bitcoin transactions are public. Like, they, you can look them up on the public ledger. And someone found that someone sent thousands and thousands of Bitcoin worth 1 billion US dollars. And it went from one unknown wallet to another unknown wallet. So no one knows what? who transferred the money. And there's no speculation, nothing. There nobody... is some speculation, but uh, nothing has been proven yet. So there's a new Bitcoin exchange called Bakht. It's B-A-K-K-T. And often when there's like a new Bitcoin exchange, they hoard a lot of Bitcoin and then put it into a wallet so that people... Like, if you try to withdraw from them, they have the money to withdraw. So they're showing, like, hey, we have right. a lot of Bitcoin. We can underwrite. You should store with us, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But Bakht said that it wasn't theirs. And it's not tied to any known cryptocurrency exchange. So we don't know whose it is. Uh, there are only a f handful of people who have over a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. It's like, I don't know, the Winklevoss twins, Satoshi, then a lot of these, like, mining companies, like, Bitmain is this uh, Chinese company that makes like mining software or, and, and mining hardware as well. Hmm. And like they have a lot of money, but no one really knows who this is. Uh, and so it's a mystery. Still, hmm. this, we published this about a week ago and no one knows. So Spooky. if you know who did that, if it was you, if you're a Bitcoin billionaire and you listen to Cyber, hit us up. Yeah, maybe throw me throw me a couple, a couple of Bitcoins. I'll take some Bitcoins. You'll take some Bitcoins. Yeah. I mean, it'd be nice. So this next story, it kind of resonates because, you know, being in, reporting on cybersecurity, how many times do we not know how to define what hacking is and what it isn't? And this in particular, there was a court that ruled that scraping is not hacking. Yeah, so there's this law called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. It is a horribly written law, uh, I think, from maybe the late 80s possibly the 90s. I don't know. I, I used to know this very well, but it's been a while since I've written about the CFAA. And it's been used to go after all sorts of people. It was used to go after Aaron Schwartz, the uh, co-founder of uh, RSS and Reddit and a couple other places. Uh, it was used to go after this cop in New York who was... Uh, looking for a woman to eat, I believe. Like oh, a, can yeah, a the cannibal, cannibal cop. cop. The cannibal it's cop. been used just for like all sorts of things. Uh, it was used to go after the Houston, or the the uh, St. Louis Cardinals 
when they were like using a stolen password to log into some scouting database a few years ago. And it's just basically like this catch-all hacking law. I was also used to go after uh, Matthew Keyes, who's like that Reuters guy, who was a pretty high-profile case a few years ago. Right, and he went to jail. He went to jail because he gave his login to his company's CMS, and then some people with Anonymous or some other hacking group uh, published like vandalism on, I think, the Chicago Tribune site, possibly the LA Times is, I'm not sure. In any case, the CFAA is used to basically prevent any unauthorized computer intrusion, and the feds use it to go after petty criminals as well as like Russian hackers and uh, like North Korean hackers, and they just use it for all levels of of hacking. And so there was this company that was scraping information from LinkedIn, uh, it, which was publicly available information, but they were using it to create, I don't know, some sort of third-party database. And LinkedIn sued them and said that they, this is a violation of the terms of service and a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. It ultimately went up to the Ninth Circuit, which is the California Circuit of Court of Appeals, which is like, it's an important circuit because it's the one where all the tech companies are based. And they determined that scraping a public website is not hacking and is not a violation of the CFAA. And there's also, I remember Facebook has kind of protected itself. Like you can't scrape Facebook for for data mining, et cetera. Yeah, and it's like LinkedIn can do whatever it wants to prevent, uh, you know, scraping. But they, what this court said is that, you know, it's not something that you can go to jail for or be sued for. I mean, it's, it's like, like It's good. a cat and mouse game, yeah. <laughs> good. I mean, it's good because it's like we use some of this st- stuff for like... As journalists. We scrape websites yeah. f- as journalists uh, on a much smaller scale than a lot of these data brokers do. I mean, we like look for exposed directories and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, yeah, it's a good... It's It's probably mostly a good thing, although people also scrape websites to do really shady shit too, so... True. You know. Okay, so and shithead should have kept his fucking mouth shut news. Richard Stallman, the famed computer scientist, described Epstein's victims as entirely willing. That like who reads anything about Epstein and finds a grain a grain of sympathy for that guy? Like, this is insane. This is, uh, it's not a complicated one, but it's like, you can see where uh, Richard Stallman, who he was one of the first uh, to start sort of the free software movement, which is very close to the open source movement and sort of a forerunner of it. It's like, software should be free and we should all uh, distribute it on open licenses and people can uh, iterate on it, blah, blah, blah. So he's like sort of a legend in this space and he works at MIT now. And as, uh, I don't know, some people may know, uh, MIT had a very close relationship with, uh, convicted pedophile and shithead, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, Mm -hmm. uh, Joy Ito, who was the head of the MIT media lab was known to solicit money directly from Epstein. And the founder of the MIT Media Lab, a guy named uh, Marvin Minsky, he's an AI dude from the 80s and 90s, etc., uh, was accused of, I guess, assault. He was accused of assaulting one of Epstein's victims, like with Jeffrey Epstein. Like, I don't know the specifics of this. And in any case, Oh, right, because Epstein had those weird cabals of, like, 
scientists and people he brought together so he could like spread his semen into the entire yeah, world or some yeah yeah it's up just shit. like it's extremely wild uh <laughs> it's like this story is it's, it's just, just ver- like it's true very, detective very season four like yeah. that's what it is uh and so anyways joy ito resigned people at mit are obviously upset like you know the students are upset some of the professors who didn't know that they were taking money from epstein are upset and are calling for more people to resign and so there was a an email thread on a listserv uh, for CSAIL, which is their computer science and artificial intelligence laboratory. Uh, that's what CSAIL stands for. And they, they it was an email thread about a protest to get people to step down related to Epstein. And then Richard Stallman, this guy, uh, the computer scientist, says, hey, 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 like, wait a minute some of Epstein's victims, the most plausible scenario is that they were entirely willing and, like, what is the definition of sexual assault? What and is... We're like, scientists, what, so we need to be what, blah, blah, blah. What is with these unforced errors from dumb, dumb dudes? Like... It's the circle of life in which, like, defending, one privileged uh, and problematic man is <laughs> uh, has their shortcomings and, in some cases, much worse than shortcomings exposed. And then someone who knows them defends them for no reason. Uh, and then that person's shortcomings are called out as well. So this happened with uh, Lawrence Lessig, who ran for president a couple of years ago, sort of laughing laugh, not very well he didn't run for president very well um but he's associated with mit and he wrote a whole thing defending joy ito and then richard stallman is now defending marvin minsky who was accused of sexual assault oh, and man. it's like you could have just not said anything uh but now it's coming out that uh richard stallman has sort of a history of uh problematic behavior we're still reporting some of that out so i don't know where the uh discourse will be on Richard Stallman by the time this podcast comes out, but uh, probably we'll have more stories on it up on Motherboard. Well, Jason, thank you for the roundup. I feel like this is the most complicated roundup we've done. It's very, it was a spicy one, I must say. Yes, thank you. This week's episode was recorded and edited by Andrew Bursick, produced by me and hosted by me. And you'll be hearing from us next week. traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.